Well, good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Mikey, and it is my privilege to serve as the youth director here at Sovereign Grace. It's also my privilege to be preaching the word this morning, and we'll be in Psalm 119. Please open up your Bibles to Psalm 119, Psalm 119, verses 73 through 80. I'll read the text, so follow along with me, and after I do so, I'll pray. Psalm 119, verse 73. Your hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Let those who fear you turn to me that they may know your testimonies. May my heart be blameless in your statutes, that I may not be put to shame. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we approach your word this morning, I pray that you would help us to recognize what it is that we're doing, that God, we are receiving, hearing from your word. God, I pray that your spirit would be at work this morning to convict our hearts, to open our eyes, to see our need of Christ. God, we thank you that your word teaches us. We thank you that your word instructs us and corrects us and rebukes us and trains us up in righteousness. We pray that it would have that effect this morning. Father, again, we pray in all things that you're glorified with our time and that Christ is exalted in our minds and in our hearts and that we are edified and built up. It's in your son's holy name that we pray. Amen. Where do you look? For hope in the midst of affliction and troubling times? Where do you look for encouragement, for strength in the midst of suffering and trials? Now, I'm sure many of us are going to answer with that classic Sunday school answer Jesus. And I'm not doubting that confession and declaration. But I'm sure many of us would also acknowledge that when we're in the midst of affliction, When we're in the midst of suffering and when we're in the midst of trials, it's very easy for us. It's very easy for us to press into and look to lesser things for comfort. It's very easy for us to look to things that are lesser delights. Look to things that will give us quick comforts and instant results. And we all know that those pursuits will leave us feeling empty. That ultimately... They're vain and filled with vanity and emptiness and can't fill us with that comfort and hope and encouragement that we're ultimately longing for. And so this morning, I just want to simply remind us of a great truth that we've really already unpacked in a number of ways throughout this psalm. And it's simply this, that our hope in the midst of affliction is found in looking to the character of God And to the word of God, our hope, our encouragement in the midst of suffering and affliction and pain is found 
in looking to God's character and looking to God's word. And when we do so, when we look to his character and when we look to his word, what is it that we ultimately find? Two things, two things that this psalm ultimately brings out that we find when we do that. First, we find comfort in our affliction. We find comfort in our affliction. Secondly, we find blessing in our affliction. When we look to the Lord as our only hope, when we look to the Lord's character and his word, we find comfort and blessing in the midst of affliction. And this stanza in Psalm 119 that we're in this week will consider these truths. We'll consider these truths as the psalmist himself writes concerning his own experience in affliction, but also as he writes so that the people of God may look at his experience and look how he persevered through his affliction so that they might find comfort, so that they might find blessing in the midst of their own affliction. Now, before we press into the text itself, just a couple of things to note right off the bat. This is the 10th stanza in Psalm 119. It's the 10th stanza, and it's also the Yod stanza. It's the Yod stanza. What that means is each verse in the Hebrew translation begins with a word that has Yod as its first letter. Now, Yod is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Some of your Bibles may even have a picture of it above verse 73, or even if they don't, just imagine a comma, but not hanging at the bottom where the word is, but hanging more at the top. That's kind of what a yod looks like. Uh, It's that small, but it is one of the primary letters in the Hebrew alphabet. So the next thing to note about this stanza before we press into it is the structure of the stanza. What form is it taking? Well, the form of this stanza is in what's known as a chiastic structure. Now, some of you are familiar with what a chiastic structure is. You've heard Chad talk about chiastic structures a lot. Chad, I think, loves talking about chiastic structures. Those and inclusios. You probably know what an inclusio is and a chiastic structure because Chad talks about them all the time. But some of you may not, or you just need a refresher. It's okay. Without spending too much time, just look at your song sheets and look at the passage for this morning. It's been typed out in the form of the chiastic structure that it finds itself. So if you saw that this morning when you got it and you thought there was a mistake or that Jordan printed this thing with his eyes closed, that was very intentional so that you can actually see and have a visual representation of the structure of the psalm. And you'll notice that it works from the outside in, and then once it gets to the middle, it comes back to the outside. So the outside verses, 73 and 80, parallel in some way. And then 74 and 79 also parallel, and then 75 and 78, and it gets down to the core. So it works from the outside and in. The outer verses really pressing into the blessing of affliction that the psalmist describes will come from his comfort in the Lord. Those are the outer verses that deal with the blessings of affliction. And then the inner verses deal with his comfort in affliction. Now for our time, we're actually going to do something a little odd or out of the ordinary. We're going to start in the middle. We're going to start in the inner verses, and then we're going to work our way toward the outside. So, 
We'll start with the inward verses dealing with his comfort in affliction, and then we'll move to the outside dealing with the blessings of affliction. So look with me at verse 76. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. So there's two things in there that bring the psalmist comfort. And we're going to separate those two. The first thing he notes is the character of God. He says, let your steadfast love comfort me. Now in the Hebrew, this word here for steadfast love is the word hesed. Some of you may be familiar with the word hesed. Oftentimes, and I think sort of incorrectly, we attribute hesed as equaling directly to God's covenant love. That hesed means covenant love. That's not necessarily altogether true. The word hesed in the Old Testament is used in a number of different ways. And it doesn't necessarily always mean covenant love, although it is his hesed, his steadfast love, that is the grounds and the basis for all of his covenant promises. You wouldn't have the assurance, you wouldn't have the grounds, you wouldn't have the firm foundation of any of the promises of God without his steadfast love. And it's because of God's steadfast love that the psalmist has been united to the relationship that he has with God so that he can appeal to his steadfast love. God's steadfast love, his hesed, is the basis, again, for God's covenant promises and the relationship the psalmist has with God. It's the basis by which he can appeal to God's steadfast love to be a comfort to him, to be a consolation for him in the midst of his suffering and his affliction. This is a necessary first attribute for him to highlight because it's the grounds for the rest of it It's the grounds for the rest of what he's ultimately going to unpack concerning who God is and what he's promised. It all rests and is founded on his steadfast love and grace, his hesed. And this naturally leads to a second attribute that the psalmist highlights in verse 77. He says, let your mercy come to me that I may live. Let your mercy come to me. It might be better rendered, let your tender mercy or let your compassion come to me. It's this idea that we get when we sing that song, come ye sinners, poor and needy. When Jesus says, come all ye who are weary, come to me and I'll give you rest. It's the idea of maybe a a hurt or a scared child going to their parent for love and comfort because they're weak and they're without strength. So they're going to the one who they know can truly satisfy, give them compassion, give them strength for their affliction, for their pain, for their weakness, for whatever it is that they're going through. We see this portrayed in the parable of the lost son. If you remember the parable of the lost son, the lost son takes his inheritance and he leaves home offending the father, leaving the family, and squandering all of his inheritance in reckless living. And finally, he gets to the point where he realizes it's time to go reconcile with my family. And as he's a long way off, the parable says that the father, and he sees from a distance. And what does it say? 
It says he felt compassion on him and then he ran to him. And when he runs to him, what does he do? He embraces him. I think this is the idea and the picture of compassion and tender mercy that the psalmist is appealing to. Lord, let your steadfast love, let your steadfast love come to comfort me. Let your compassion, your tender mercies be an encouragement, be a point of strength for me because I'm at the end of my rope. I need you. And then verse 75, now now we're starting to work outward. He makes mention of two more attributes of God that he appeals to. Two more characteristics of who God is that he finds comfort in. Verse 75, he says, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous. So there's one. Let's stop there. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous. What's he doing here? Well, he's appealing to God's righteous judgment to be a comfort to him. But no... Also, what he's saying about God's righteous judgment, he says, I know that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you've afflicted me. He attributes his present state of affliction and suffering to the righteous judgment of God. If you look back at verse 67, you know partly that his affliction that's been brought about on him is due to his own going astray. Look back at verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. The psalmist is saying, I went astray. I went astray and God, in your righteous judgment, you have brought this affliction upon me to correct me. Now, this is a hard thing for us to understand or really grasp and accept that God can and does discipline us for our sin. He does so, but why does he do so? He does so as a loving father would do for their own children so that in that discipline, they may grow in holiness. So they might grow and be trained up in obedience. But know this as well. The psalmist says, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous. The cause, the reason why I'm being afflicted is because of your righteous judgment. But he also acknowledges that for however long he's going to experience this affliction, the duration of time and the degree, the level of affliction he experiences is also in the hands of God's justice and God's wisdom. But the psalmist says, God, I know, I know that your justice and your judgments are right. You will not utterly destroy me in this. He knows that. And he can find comfort in the fact that all that God does is just, even when we find ourselves in the midst of affliction and suffering. So he acknowledges that the primary cause of his current state of affliction is from the Lord, but he also acknowledges that there's a secondary cause of his affliction. Look down at verse 78. He says, Let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. So while on one hand he acknowledges, God, you are the primary cause for my affliction, but also he recognizes that there are human means, there are humans, the insolent ones, who are wronging me with falsehood, who are fully responsible for their own sin and wickedness against him. And he appeals to God's justice 
that he will deal rightly with the insolent, that he will humble them, that he will bring them low, that he will bring them shame. This is a great mystery. As we consider this, as we consider God as the primary cause in bringing about this affliction, but also there's these human agents who are fully responsible for the decisions and the wickedness they make. And hopefully this reminds you of the words that we see in Genesis in the story of Joseph, where he says, they meant evil, but God, you meant good. God afflicts. God may bring about suffering. He may bring about trials, but his reason for doing so is always just and is always right. And the wicked, the insolent ones, they will receive their just punishment as well. So the psalmist finds consolation. He finds comfort in trusting in the Lord's righteous judgment and wisdom, even in the midst of affliction. This leads us to consider that just the last attribute of God that he appeals to, and we see it back in verse 75. He says, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous, And that in faithfulness, you have afflicted me. In faithfulness, you have afflicted me. And that would be really easy to make sense of, really easy to grasp and accept if it read as, God, I know that in faithfulness, you will deliver me from affliction. But what does he say? He says, God, in faithfulness, you have afflicted me. Not just that you will deliver me from my affliction, but in faithfulness, You've brought it about. And this relates to his righteous judgment. God is treating us as sons. He's treating us as his children. Again, that imagery we get in Hebrews chapter 12 of a good father disciplining his kids is exactly the imagery that we have. That we all had earthly fathers, the the apostle says, we all had earthly fathers who disciplined us as it seemed best for them. But God disciplines us for our good. Why? So that we might share in his holiness. That's the great aim. That we might share in his holiness as a result of the affliction and the discipline and the trials that he brings about in our lives. That we might share in his holiness. That we might grow and be trained up in obedience and godliness and faithfulness to him. God is just and right to discipline us in this way. God is just and right to bring about whatever affliction or trial we undergo. He's always just and right. And to do so is ultimately an act of his faithful care over our lives to preserve us, to train us up and build us up in holiness so that we might be conformed more and more into the image and likeness of his son. So the psalmist, again, finds comfort in looking to the character of God. But he also finds comfort in looking to the Word of God. And we have a mention of his appeal to looking to the Word of God, the law of God, the promises of God in three of these middle verses. In verse 76, he says, Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Let the insolent be put to shame, because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. This is very important for us to grasp, that fixing our delights, meditating and fixing our minds, 
and contemplating the truth of God's word and his promises is necessary for us if we might find comfort in the midst of affliction. Because when we don't, when we don't look to his word and when we don't look to his promises, what tends to happen? Well, what tends to happen is what we talked about at the very outset, that we find ourselves drifting, that we find ourselves wandering off into lesser delights, looking to those things that might bring us instant results and quick reliefs, but we know won't ultimately bring it for us. And when we're not clinging to God's word and clinging to his promises in the midst of affliction, we also can tend to sit and fixate and question God's righteousness, question God's faithfulness, doubt his steadfast love, accuse him of some potential wickedness or lack of care or compassion. But when we press into the word of God, when we press into contemplating the promises of God, we're reminded of the great truths about who God is and what he's done and what he promises for his people. And when we do, we find comfort and encouragement even in the midst of affliction. This is why we as a church are constantly holding up the word of God and the gospel and everything that we do. Our entire service, as most of you know, our entire Sunday morning service is wrapped around the gospel. It's wrapped around the gospel. We want people to be aware of of their misery, of their sin and the law and their violation of it. But then we quickly remind them of the assurance and the pardon of sin that's in the gospel. And in the proclamation of God's word and the singing of spiritual songs and hymns and the music that we play, all of it is meant to uphold the glory of God and exalt Christ so that we might be edified, so that we might be built up, so that we might look to him and be saved, so that we might grow in our dependence and our love and our delight in him. Our comfort, brothers and sisters, in the midst of affliction is found in looking to God's character and looking to his word. And that's ultimately really captures the idea of those inner verses. Now let's consider the outer verses. Let's consider the outer verses as the psalmist highlights the blessings that come from affliction. And they're twofold. The first we see in verses 74 and 79, if you remember we're working outside and those verses are paralleled. The first blessing in affliction we see in verse 74 and 79, where it says, those who fear you shall see me and rejoice. Those who fear you, who's he talking about? He's talking about the God fearers. He's talking about the people of God. He's talking about ultimately the church, his elect, his people. So there's a corporate blessing that comes from our affliction and our perseverance in affliction. There's a corporate blessing. Note again what it says. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice. Their praise will increase. Their joy will increase. Their worship will increase. Why? It increases because they see, one, the psalmist's faithful perseverance in the midst of suffering. But they also see God's faithful preservation of the psalmist in his suffering. They see on full display the psalmist persevering and clinging to the steadfast love of God. And they also see God's faithfulness and steadfast love in the life of the servant, in the life of the psalmist. And when they do so, they praise and they rejoice. 
their trust and their confidence in who God is and what He promises is increased. But also in verse 79, it says, Let those who fear you turn to me, that they may know your testimonies. So the church, the body of Christ, is edified and blessed in another way. Their joy is increased, but also their fellowship with one another. And their knowledge or confidence in the truth is increased. He says, let those who fear you turn to me. Why? So that they might see your goodness, your faithfulness, your loving kindness, and your compassion in my life and in the midst of my suffering. And in doing so, our fellowship together will grow and increase. And your confidence in God's promises will also grow and increase. Now, I don't think we see our affliction in this way enough or at all. Christianity is not as individualistic as many make it out to be. There are individualistic aspects of our faith, sure. But much of the Christian life is not individualistic. It's corporate. Again, a very familiar passage. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to look at it briefly. A very familiar passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In verse 12, Paul says, For just as the body is one... And has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. In verse 14, for the body does not consist of one member, but many. In verse 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. And if one member is honored, all rejoice together. There's a sense in which... When one member of the body of Christ is suffering and is undergoing some sort of pain or affliction, in some sense, the body of Christ does feel and experience it in some way. But also, when that member is honored or when that member experiences a blessing from the Lord or a comfort from the Lord or when they experience salvation or deliverance, the body rejoices. Because again, we are one. We are one body. I hope that one of the things you leave this morning thinking about is the way in which your perseverance and affliction impacts those around you. And we can think of a number of different examples and scenarios where this may be true in our lives, whether it be with believers and brothers and sisters in Christ that we work with, or even just our brothers and sisters here. But even just think about the family and your own children And how your perseverance and endurance in the face of affliction impacts your own kids' lives. Do you find yourself, when you're in the midst of affliction, do you find yourself turning to lesser things to comfort you? Or do you sit and become angry and frustrated at God and and frustrated and angry at your circumstances? Think about what that may communicate and testify about your faith and your trust. But on the other hand... Think about the way in which your perseverance, your clinging to the promises of God, your clinging to the Word of God, your clinging to the steadfast love of God and testifying of His grace and His goodness in your life, even in the midst of suffering. Think about the way in which that would impact your own kids and what that teaches them about God and His steadfast love and teaches them about His faithfulness and what it teaches them about living the Christian life in faith and in trust and dependence upon the Lord. We as a church encourage in our grace groups weekly to share evidences of grace with one another, partly for this very purpose, 
Partly so that we know what's going on in each other's lives, so that we know how to pray for one another. But there's a sense when we come together in fellowship, whether on Sunday morning, Sunday evenings, or when we come together at grace groups, or just coffee or dinner with members at the church, and we share evidences of grace, we share the way in which God is working in our lives, that blesses and encourages and edifies those that you share it with. That's why we do those things. So the psalmist highlights that his affliction, he hopes and trusts, will serve as a blessing to the God-fears, to the people of God around him. But there's one more blessing that he brings up, and this is on the two outermost verses. And this is the individual blessing that flows from his affliction. And in many ways, we've already talked about this in the previous stanzas. In every stanza up to this point, there's been some sort of plea or request for growth and understanding and discernment. But let's look at it again, just briefly, in verse 73 and 80. He says, Your hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. May my heart be blameless in your statutes that I may not be put to shame. So firstly, he acknowledges something to be true about God. He says, God, you made me and you've made me who I am today. When we think of he made us, it is directly speaking of God creating. But when we think of fashioned, it's not just so much as he fashioned us. He gave us a unique personality type that's different from, you know, the person next to us. That's not what fashioned is really ultimately getting at. But again, like I said, he made us, he created us, and he, he, the psalmist acknowledges, you've made me who I am today. Your steadfast love has been upon me. You've united me to yourself. And throughout the course of my life, throughout the things I've undergone and experienced, you've made me who I am today, according to your faithful providence and mercy in my life. You've created me and made me the person that I am today. And then notice his request, give me understanding or give me discernment in your law or in your word. What's his ultimate goal here? He wants to know and understand God's word. Why? So that he might walk in obedience to it. Give me understanding to your law. Give me discernment concerning your law so that I might walk in faithfulness so that I might walk in godliness, so that I might live a pleasing and godly life to you, so that I might be a testimony to those around me of faithful perseverance. And also he pleads that he would not be blameless. He wants to understand God's law so that he might obey it rightly, and he doesn't want to be blameless as it pertains to violation of the law. He's been there. Again, verse 67 Lord, before you afflicted me, I went astray. The psalmist acknowledges, acknowledges the feeling of shame that sin brings. He acknowledges the shame that violation of God's law brings. And he doesn't want either of those. He doesn't want to experience the shame of violating God's law. And he wants to humbly obey and serve God, even in the midst of affliction. He doesn't see his affliction as a pass to become angry with God, to be frustrated with God. He doesn't see his affliction as a license to sin. 
Oh, I can say that. I can feel that way about God. I can say that to those around me and treat those around me this way because I'm experiencing this and that. He doesn't see his pain and his affliction in that sense. He sees it as a means by which God will sanctify him, train him up in godliness and in holiness so that he might live a glorifying and God-pleasing life. What we see in James chapter 1 Verses 2 and 4, we see in the life of this psalmist. You don't need to turn there. I'll just read it briefly. It's very probably a very familiar passage to most of you. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The psalmist knows and recognizes that this is the outcome of faithful perseverance, of trusting in the Lord, His Word, and His character. He wants this to be His outcome. And he entrusts himself to the Lord that it will be. And the same ought to be true of us. No matter what it is that we're going through, no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in life, whether circumstances in times of well-being or times in the circumstances of struggle and difficulty. This ought to be our prayer, that in all things we would persevere in the faith, that we would look to Him in trust and dependence, pressing in and leaning upon His character and His Word and hoping and trusting that He will greatly bless His people and ourselves as a result of it. Now, before we wrap up, I just want to make a couple of points of meditation, just three, and they'll come really quick. And the first one, in light of all of this, meditate on Christ. Think on Christ. Look to Christ. Why? Because he's the chief example of the truths that we find in this stanza. He faithfully endured in the midst of affliction. He faithfully endured the sufferings on the cross. He faithfully endured looking to the promises of God concerning Himself. He faithfully endured looking to God's steadfast love and His justice, clinging to the truth that, God, what you are doing in my life and what you are about to do on the cross is according to your wise and just will. And He entrusted Himself to that. He entrusted Himself to the Lord and to His Word. And we, in light of this, are blessed beyond measure. We are blessed beyond measure because of His faithful endurance on the cross and His perseverance in trusting Himself to the will of God to suffer on behalf of sinful man. We are greatly blessed for in Him we find our reconciliation with God and our redemption and our salvation. Our assurance in the midst of affliction is built on the foundation of Christ's person and work. Why? Because the fullness of God's steadfast love, his justice, and his faithfulness is seen in him. That's why when we're in the midst of affliction, week after week, you hear the application on Sunday morning, look to Christ. Look to Christ over and over and over again. Look to him because in him we find the chief expression of God's grace and God's justice and steadfast love. Another thing just to meditate on, remind ourselves of, as it's already been highlighted, think on and meditate on the ways in which your 
faithful perseverance in affliction serves to not only bring about your own sanctification and edification, but also the way in which your perseverance edifies the church and believers around you. May we praise God for his steadfast love and faithfulness in all things. This is the grounds of all that we know to be true about him and his promises to us. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, we come before you in awe and in wonder and in praise as we consider your goodness, as we consider your steadfast love, tender mercies, compassion, and justice. God, may we look to you and look to your Son for our comfort and for our confidence even in the midst of affliction, even in the midst of suffering. God, may we cling to your word, cling to the truths of you. May we look to one another as a source of blessing and comfort in the midst of our own affliction. Father, we thank you. We love you. And it's in your holy name that we pray. Amen.